I know certainly in my career, I had a point where for about two weeks I stared at a wall and that's literally all I did apart from going to the toilet. You know, my wife would go out to work. I had given up on getting jobs anywhere and so for two weeks I stared at a wall. Sometimes freelancing sucks and sometimes your diary will be empty. For some reason, it's not okay to share that, but yeah, I think we have to share that stuff. We should normalize that feeling, and I've been there, and I know many people who started out freelancing. It scares me how many interpreters have probably had that feeling and not wanted to admit it. Or like when you go to a conference and you ask someone, you know, how are things? I'd smile and say something like, oh, you know what it's like, I'm always on the hunt for new clients. You know, it's, it, it's not lying, but it's not the truth. And it's like, guys, we can't afford that crap anymore, really. Should we maybe just get started? What do you think? For people who are in this, this is really useful, but it may trigger some reaction. This is Troublesome Terps, the podcast that is unafraid of the big issues in interpreting. This week, we're looking at... <clears throat> so this week, we are... <sighs> All right, so you guessed it. This week, we're talking about stress and burnout in our profession, what it might mean, and how confidentiality plays into all of it. With me this week is the poster boy for, of technophile interpreters, the man with a bag, Alexander Drexel. Uh, hang on, hang on, on. Uh, poster boy sounds really nice, but the man with a bag—that sounds like a bag lady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also with us is a man who never misses a chance to promote his brand new book, "How to Become a Successful Interpreter." Jonathan Downing. It's out in all good bookstores in Europe and most countries from May the 12th and in North America and the rest of the world from the 21st of May. And the link will be in the show notes. And email me if you can't find a stockist. Oh, yeah. And hi, it's good to be back. <laughs> all right, guys. It's good to be here. Um, should we just get right started with the topic? Because I think this week is a very interesting one. So, Jonathan. Why, why, don't you, why don't you kick things off? Okay, uh, I want to kick things off with a couple of basic ideas. One is that interpreting is inherently stressful. Um, and we all know that, and to be honest, I think many of us get into interpreting because we get addicted to that stress. Um, but on the other hand, there's a kind of stress that lets you work and a kind of stress that's helpful and a kind of stress which in the long term is not just bad for your career but is probably bad for your whole, your whole mental health um, and so I think the, um, 2001 there was um, IEEC which is the International Association of Conference Interpreters and represents if Alexander Drexel doesn't mind me saying this, it represents kind of the elite of our profession, or at least the elite freelancers. In 2001, they say basically interpreters are not just stressed, but they have stupidly high levels of burnout, higher than I think it was um, senior Israeli army officers. So straight away, the question is why? Maybe to start at the beginning where you, where you uh, said that many of us do the job because they're addicted to the, to the stress. I don't, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was at least that that got me thinking, um, because I think it can easily be confused. I mean, many of us are trying to get into what's what's known as flow, the magical zone. Yeah. You know, there's this kind of mix between adrenaline and and excitement and enjoying what you do, and yeah, like the, in being in the zone exactly, which is not necessarily the same as as stress, right? I do think that Jonathan has a point, though, because when you're stressed, usually kind of the adrenaline kicks in, and then that kind of, one thing kind of automatically leads to the other. So I think even though they might not necessarily be one and the same thing, they're definitely connected, being in the flow and in the zone and being stressed. I, I think it's, for, for me, I would call it the adrenaline kick. Um, I, 
I jokingly say sometimes that I think interpreters are a bit like skydivers, that we love that initial rush of, you know, we, we all know, even if you know a job really well, and even if you've done it before, that first 30 seconds, 60 seconds of your shift, there's a kick that lifts you into the zone. Um, and I think it's that kick. And I wonder somehow if we if we take for granted the sheer gymnastics that we're asking our brains to do. And we've all heard about them and we've all been taught about them. But we're really pushing our, our brains and to an extent the rest of our bodies to, to lengths that they may not necessarily have been designed to go to. And there's something about being in that zone where it feels easier than it probably is on your body. Because of the adrenaline. Because of the adrenaline and also I think when you're, as someone who's been in the zone a few times, you know, sadly it doesn't happen every job. But when you do get in that zone, it feels like you're not expending any energy at all and you're just riding on a wave. And then sometimes when you're off shift and your birthmate's taking over, you're like, I need a drink of water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Iron brew. <laughs> yeah, or, or a chocolate bar or something. <laughs> Can I tell you the, a funny story about that? I was just I was just reminded of that of that high that you get, that adrenaline rush. And the very first job that I did in Munich, I think I was in the zone. I definitely definitely felt good doing it. I felt like I was I was performing. After the job, I remember I was basically floating on cloud number nine. You know, I was like in the stratosphere, and then after about fifteen minutes, I was on the subway home, and I literally fell asleep on the subway. I was crashing so hard. It was just, you know, I had this incredible high and then I had an incredible low, basically. <laughs> I vividly remember that. Yeah, I think we all have experienced that at some point and, and to some degree, yeah. yeah, like complete exhaustion, mental yeah. and physical exhaustion. It's, it's funny. I, I had that in some of the volunteer interpreting that I've done, but I want to let people into a secret, and it's not particularly nice one. The very first paid job that I did, um, I was prepared in terms of terminology, but I wasn't physically or mentally prepared for the exertion. And also, I think I had the wrong impression of what interpreting actually meant, even though I'd been through training. And so I had a mini panic attack in the booth. Oh. And it took me a good hour hmm. to actually be in a mental state to be able to work. Now, if you imagine the pressures that's put on my birthmate mm. when she's watching someone flailing badly and having to do like 10 minute shifts. Now, on the other hand, you know, she's now my, my preferred birthmate and we work together all the time and it's never happened since. But I think there is, you know, maybe the kick can go either way. Um, and while I've not yet had a, a professional job when I've come home completely exhausted i have had a couple of volunteer jobs and i've noticed that what exhausts me more is not the interpreting itself but when i feel there's um specialized pressure on me to perform so if it's people that i know who are listening if it's a topic that will literally change people's lives i, I did one volunteer interpreting assignment where they were raising money for a group of people who their main economic um activity was selling their the women of their people group into prostitution mm. That was tiring. That was very tiring. And it was only like a one hour slot. That one hour slot knocked me for about a day. Yeah, I mean, it can it can absolutely be very, very exhausting if the topic is is tough in, and it can be all kinds of, it can be very technical. It can be very emotionally uh, stressful. If it's, if it's, you know, people telling their story of war or, or things that they've been through. And I, I've had a few things that they weren't extreme, but I mean, they were, they were quite tough stories that you need to relay. And I think that's what you mentioned earlier on, Jonathan, the uh, vicarious traumatization that can occur because all that information goes through you and you r relay it into another language. And then uh, it can happen that you sort of, uh, you're so close to that material that, that it feels like you've gone through that experience yourself, which can be very yeah. stressful. I, I have not myself experienced that vicarious trauma, but... In the run-up to this podcast, I was reading an article from 2010 from the ATA Chronicle. And funnily enough, it actually does talk about stress and interpreting, but mostly for health interpreters because I found that there's a lot of material out there for both sign language and um, PSI, so public servity, communicating community interpreting, medical interpreting, those kinds of things. There's a bit out there for conferencing, but... Um, 
in this article, I, I read this today and it really hit me hard. This lady who wrote it, she was interpreting at a hospital. And in one day, she had different assignments, but in the same hospital. So one, she was in this ward, then she was in that department. And she writes that her second to last job on the day was that she was going to the children's oncology ward where there was a teenage girl who was languishing languishing from the effects of leukemia in spite of massive doses of chemotherapy and radiation that were ravaging her body. So that already put quite, you know, a heavy burden on her. And then the last appointment, um, and I'm just going to read this out. She says, my last appointment with a woman in the delivery room laboring to give birth to a stillborn baby pushed me over the edge. And basically after that, the lady just locked herself, the, the interpreter lady just locked herself into the bathroom and started crying for, I don't even know how long. So th- those kinds of things, I don't even think that any person... You know, you never expect those things, even at, even as an interpreter, even if you have the training, even though you know of the theoretical risks you might run at these kinds of things. And I definitely don't think that a lot of clients, when they book us, think of the danger that we might, or the, the, the danger, you know what I mean, that we might run into in these kinds of situations. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that the key takeaway message from this ATA article that you were referencing referencing there is that she found a way to to deal with the uh emotional stress and with everything that she that she went through and then she goes on to describe um that 15 years later i mean she's she's looking back back i suppose to the beginning of her career and 15 years later she says she's deeply gratified with her career choice and my only regret is that it took me so long to discover the tools that enable me to continue doing this work. And I think that's that's the important thing. I mean, because we, we cannot avoid having these experiences sometimes, but we have to find a way of dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank God there was a happy ending, <laughs> I have to say. And I think that's the thing is that we're not, we're kind of not asking clients to never expose us to, to stress or to, to mental health issues. I think what we're asking is for our profession to reconsider what it means to be an interpreter and, and to there's this notion going around called community of practice and a lot of people will, will think about it as, you know, improve your technique or learn some kind of other skill from other interpreters and that's great. But to me, at the heart of a community of practice in a job like interpreting is uh, making it okay to not be okay. Um, and I think that's, I remember talking to Elizabeth, um, I think it was Elizabeth Tselis about that, and the, there's an interview with her in the book. And th- there's a point where I say, you know, why is it that no one, that we don't feel happy to say we need help or to go and get help? And she said, well, that's the million euro question. Um, how can we build a, a talking profession or a communicating profession where there are some things we've accidentally, hopefully made it not okay to communicate? Um, I think for our own good, that probably has to change. And I would imagine it's especially difficult for people who enter the profession, so for the for the newcomers, um, because there can be so many things in in especially in the beginning that you're maybe not prepared for. You don't feel like you're prepared prepared for it, depending on how good your training was. You may feel that you're not sufficiently qualified, that your interpreting technique isn't good enough, even if it maybe is good enough, but you just feel otherwise. Um, then there's the whole freelance stuff, taxes, uh, finding clients, finding assignments. That can be very stressful if you're not well prepared or if you're having difficulty getting into that part of the profession, I would assume. But I do have to say that in the beginning, when I started out freelancing, I was, I'm not going to say I was never worried about my interpreting, but that's the only part that I knew was going to work because that's the only part where I had to rely on myself. So that part was all on me. And I knew that, you know, if I got the job, if I did the preparation, if I got there on time, that I was going to function somehow. But it was actually the entire surrounding thing. So it was, who am I going to work with? Is it a new colleague? Do they have a lot more experience? How are they going to treat me? Am I going to get material? How am I going to get there? How is the client going to be? What's the working situation like? How long are the shifts? How long is the conference? Those were the factors that were outside of my control that in the beginning really stressed me out, especially the whole freelance stuff with the taxes. The taxes (laughs) still stress me out to this day. (laughs) Yeah, I I think there's a couple of things going on. I think on the one hand, um, 
when you're a newbie interpreter, you absolutely don't know what you're getting yourself into. And in a sense, that's part of the magic of the job, because even if you dummy boothed for like a thousand conferences, it's still completely different when you're in the seat. Um, and I, I think there, there's something of, you don't want to lose that. But on the other hand, there is something of um, creating a profession where we're really understanding with people who are struggling. And it could be with anything. It's like, okay, I, I got stressed with the interpreting once. What stressed me more for ages and ages was, um, not was my interpreting good enough, but were my business skills good enough to land clients? Um, and I, I like, um, there's a, a, pay, a, a former colleague of mine who got her PhD at Harriet Work called Robin Dean, who for most of her academic career, and she's been in academia for over a decade, has been working with medical and, uh, medical sign language interpreters and realizing that doctors get a really structured supervision process that teach you, that takes, you know, it's all the technical stuff, but also all of the career mentoring gets rolled into that as well. They, they discuss cases with other doctors so they can do whatever they do better. And she made this suggestion of what if we did that for interpreting? So what if we had some kind of system where um, interpreters were supervised all the way through where they could rely on another colleague to not smack them down when they made the mistake or hit them for asking a stupid question, but to say, yeah, guess what? Everyone goes through that. Everyone has a wall staring period. Um, everyone gets scared that they won't find enough clients and step them through that process, not giving them all the answers, but teaching them the, the, the processes that you need just to survive as an interpreter. But isn't that something that the professional associations could do? I mean, Alexander, maybe you can talk a little bit about the uh, mentoring program that uh, exists in the VKD, the, the German Association of Conference Interpreters. Absolutely. I, I think that's exactly what the professional associations are very... I think they're in a very good position to do that because I think a mentoring program gives you that safe environment where you as a newbie, you know that this is your chance to ask these questions um, almost without any negative consequences. I mean, obviously, if you say some completely outrageous things, you know, you might get some negative feedback. But I do think that in some cases that might be warranted and you might actually need to hear it. But in those in those mentoring programs, I think that's exactly what they do. They guide you. They give you that forum that you need, not only with your with your one-on-one um, -on -one mentor, but also with the other mentees. So you got you can exchange information, you can exchange experiences. And I think it takes away a lot of the pressure of the feeling that you have to know everything, that you need to be basically a fully baked interpreter by the time you hit the market. I think that's that's what it's really good at. And yeah, so far we've only had very great feedback at, in the, within the VKD and everybody seems to love that open that open environment because I do think that it, it just takes the edge off, you know? But what do we tell someone who is maybe not a member of a professional association? Maybe they don't want to, maybe it's not possible. Um, because my, my gut reaction would be to just say, well, you have to be open. You just go into the booth. You say, well, I'm a newbie. Uh, can you give me feedback? That kind of thing. But uh, maybe that doesn't feel right, or maybe that's not an option. I mean, what, what do you tell those those people? It's difficult, I think. First of all, we, of course, tell them to join the FAKD. That's the very first thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yes. No, but but all jokes aside, I think that's the, that's the right <laughs> attitude. You just have to not be entirely mortified of the situation <laughs> i think that's that's kind of the it, it does sound very easy but um obviously it's not yeah well if you, it sounds so easy when you say it like that i i think though there's a lot of um th there is the question of professional image and like so for instance with my usual with my normal booth mate i can kind of ask for stuff and she's very good at you know occasionally you'll ha you have a shift and you're like what was that and, and nine times out of ten it's absolutely fine it's just it feels worse than it was um but there's still this professional image thing whenever i have a new booth mate you have this i don't know if, if you guys have experienced this if you have a booth mate that you've never worked before you have a part of the job where you're kind of feeling each other out 
if you've never had a booth mate before and you don't know how that kind of feeling each other out, you know, how much terminology do you want me to give? If you don't know how that works and you've, if you've never experienced that, to go to your first booth mate and go, hi, this is my first job. I'm not really sure what I'm doing. Can you give me feedback? You can, you can even, I know if someone said that to me and I'm open and friendly, it would be difficult for me not to put my head in my hands and go, I really hope I'm not going to carry someone. And I'm compassionate and friendly and would love to support newbies. So, it, it, it's it's finding ways of asking the question without saying, sorry, can you carry me for the next day? That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, that's a fine line. Exactly. Because you're still, you want to be a professional interpreter, but you, you don't want to be, you know, completely faking it or... Um, <laughs> completely faking <yeah>. it? <laughs> that was a bad way of phrasing it, but I hope you, you, <laughs> you could understand what I was saying. <laughs> I think it was the perfect way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. But I think even even beyond the initial parts of your professional career, and this is actually Jonathan, where I would like to start talking about your your brilliant article that you just pu published on your Integrity Languages blog. Um, I think even after that initial phase, so once you've gathered that confidence that you can step into a booth, even with a new booth mate, and just go about your business. But I do think that even then, it's important to just speak up and exchange information. And that's that's pretty much what your article is about. It's about confidentiality and how we exchange information and experiences. Do you want to maybe uh, talk a little bit about that article, Jonathan, what the premise is? Yeah, the... <laughs> The, the the premise is the first line, which I deliberately tried to make as over the top as possible. And it starts with the line, there's a silent contagion that threatens to kill my profession. And I deliberate. Now, I know that's almost purple, but what I, it, I was, I, I was getting slightly angry in that um, until recently. And, and this is, again, a generational shift in interpreting until fairly recently we had the pillars of interpreting where everybody knew it was neutrality, confidentiality, and um, accuracy, however you define those three. Um, and, and basically, we said in the last podcast that we'd accidentally or not so accidentally painted interpreters as robots, and that's got a whole lot of problems. But the, the one that had been challenged, at least accuracy, is is a whole other ballgame for another podcast as to what is accuracy. Um, but the one that no one had really thought to challenge was confidentiality. No one had asked, what do we mean by it? Where is it coming from? Is it useful? Um, and I had started reading stuff by Robin Dean where she's like, well, confidentiality anywhere else doesn't mean what it seems to mean in interpreting, which is don't tell anyone anything. Yeah. Um, and actually that don't tell anyone anything attitude, hmm. the more that I looked into it, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's probably dangerous. And then when I came across this AIC study of interpreter burnout, I, I know I'm putting two and two together and getting five. But I do think there's a, I, I do think there's a part of, you know, if we are having mental health issues, which seem to be rife in the profession, and we need to be okay admitting that we have a mental health issue in the profession and we need to deal with it, the number one question for me, maybe I'm a researcher, but I always say why. And to me, one of the most obvious causes is if you can't talk about your work and your work is stressful, you're inviting issues. And I, th I think I pulled out just f three r studies at random on the link between social isolation and depression. I've got a friend who's a, a cognitive behavioral therapist, and he said, you, you would never get out that rabbit hole if you started looking at it. He said, there's too much for any one person to read. And it's a given now that if you're socially isolated, you're more likely to get depressed, you're more likely to get heart disease, you're more likely to get burnout. But it sounds so strange. Sorry to, to jump in here, but I mean, the, the job is all about communication, bringing people together, making people understand each other. Hmm. And then you have this problem that uh, we have this, this issue of communicating properly about things that are maybe our own issues or issues of the profession. I mean, it's, it's very odd in a way, but it does exist. Absolutely. I think it's an interesting dichotomy in that we are providing communication for other people but then we technically 
or theoretically aren't allowed to communicate between each other. Because if you look at the Code of Professional Ethics of AIC, which, as Jonathan mentioned, is the International Association of Conference Interpreting, in their second article, and I'm just going to read read this out. It's just a very short sentence. It says, members of the association shall be bound to the strictest secrecy, which must be observed towards all persons and with regard to all information disclosed in the course of the practice of the profession at any gathering not open to the public. So basically what they're saying here, and I know I'm paraphrasing, but basically they're saying don't tell anything to anyone. Which begs the question, I think to some extent, uh, I mean, I think the, the main focus group of this is interpreters, obviously, but I could imagine since this is also a public document, is that it's also aimed to some extent to clients just to to say, well, look, interpreters, they know everything about you or your business or your, uh, your latest balance sheet or whatever, but they are bound to secrecy and they're not going to be a leak for that information. But, but the, the irony is, and this is something I point out in the article, what's the first thing that two interpreters do when they meet? They share anonymized war stories. We all do it. You know, um, we, we end up playing this game out of have you ever, you know, have you ever had a client when the, when the president of the meeting said, I'd like to open it for questions, pulled out 20 sheets of paper and started reading and had no questions. And we'll share, we'll share those anonymized stories and no one knows who it is. But when it comes to the really important stuff, when it comes to the, the stuff that could actually help and basic ideas of, you know, let, can we debrief on assignments? We're not going to promise something that we can't deliver and stay, and stay healthy. Um, and may, maybe there are going to be some people in IE who read this and maybe we'll get angry emails. Okay, but maybe this podcast might start a dialogue where we might ask, what's the most helpful response? And yeah, I've, I've had an agency send me a, a set of terms that said basically what the IEC terms said. Um, we, we've seen those terms and we know why they're there, but they're wrong and they're dangerously wrong. But you know, it's funny, until you sent out that article or until you posted it, I should say, I wasn't thinking of, of confidentiality in the way that the IEEE Code of Ethics describes it or you described it in, in this article because at uni, while we were studying interpreting, we learned, this is one of the coping mechanisms that we discussed um, after the job, you know, kind of how, how to deal with the stress is that we should get a an interpreting buddy, which it, at uni they defined as a person who is not your language combination and maybe even someone who wasn't necessarily on the same, you know, part of the same conference as you were. And then you talk to them because they're not going to, well, hate on you because you took their job, you know, if they're not from your language combination. And they get it they know how it is to be in that conference situation and then to just tell them well your stress from that particular conference saying the speaker was just incredibly fast i feel like i wasn't able to convey the message in this instance or you know this went really well and then you guys can both be happy together so this is actually something that we learned at uni to to basically um debrief each other in a way and and that's exactly what interpreting needs um, and I'm glad that I, I know where you went to uni and I know who taught you so I know you were taught well um, but but the thing is is that kind of debriefing and I love the idea that someone without your combinations who wasn't necessarily at the job um, to, to, to just sit down and go you know um, I, or even something like you know um, I was almost going to be booked for a job that was going to be the most stressful job I did because it was live media even to be able to decompress before the job and talk to another interpreter and go this is amazingly exciting, but, and then afterwards to go, you know, to, to be able to share. Now, we're not going to share with another interpreter whose stock's going up and whose stock is going down or who was at the proctologist last night. Obviously, we're not going to do that. But we, we do need a safe space to, to decompress. And also things like Elizabeth Teselius, who is, is the kind of genius of uh, interpreter development at the moment, has pointed out that in every other profession, people grow by having coaching or some sort of mentoring thing. Um, and, you know, let, let's have the day of the interpreting mentor. Let's have the day of the interpreting coach where we can say to a coach, oh, I just did a job on um, paint sales um, and it was fine except for this one bit. For the good of our clients, that would be great because suddenly we're going to get better because we have someone who knows enough about interpreting to go, you know, let, let, let's play with this a bit. Let's see. We have the tools, you know. It's it's good to see that Falcadi and 
wherever you went to university, are using them. Um, but I think that's got to be something that's profession-wide that the whole profession adopts. <laughs> we can name it. So it was Kirsty Hamelmage and she taught me and she actually said that this is a really good way. And I, and I do agree. And I think that you mentioned that this is the only way that we can actually improve. And you said it in your article that other professions do it as well. So the, the medical profession or lawyers come to mind or consultants, you know, like you have all these, these specialized conferences where people come and they discuss specific cases for example doctors like they will always discuss very difficult cases they will they might actually even consult with other doctors while they're on the case um but they don't necessarily disclose all of the uh, confidential information in that particular conference they just say okay this is what i'm dealing with it's not just a broken leg it might be much more what do you think Or how should I, or in hindsight, how should I have done it differently? And only in that way we can learn. And I think that this is exactly what we need to do. And you've said it brilliantly in your article. Can I ask you a question, just real quickly? Uh, what would you say is the role of competition? Uh, is that an issue that you don't talk about your experiences, your clients, uh, because you want to keep it to yourself? You don't want to. You want to keep the clients to yourself. Is that an issue? If, if there had been a camera, you would have seen me puffing my cheeks out. Um, <laughs> it, it's stress. Oh, Jonathan. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things going on. And, and you, know, you know me, I always say there's a couple of things going on. One is the people who, the only people who I'm realistically competing against are the people who are really likely to become my booth partners, my booth mates one day. So figure that one out. You know, my competitors are also likely to be the people I work with. So I have no idea what kind of competition that makes. Um, I think you have this question of, um, you know, if you get a job through an agency, do you tell anyone who the end client is? And that's a sticky one, and that depends on your contract. But I think what we are talking about here is not necessarily about not sharing who your clients are, which is kind of obvious, you know, unless the client tells you to. It's another question we can get to later. Um, but I think, the, I think the competition that you're talking about is more the interpreter thing of am i a better interpreter than you and we we know it shouldn't happen but we all know that if we're not careful you can get into this vying thing you know how many boothers have you had um are you an ike member or are you not um you know what what level of conferences are you doing um i, I remember joking with, with alexander drexel I, i said you know are you a senior or a junior interpreter and it for the European institutions, and you said somewhere in the middle, so I started calling you the junior. Um, <laughs> but this is we 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 have this thing about putting hierarchies in our industry, and it so doesn't matter because you know sign language interpreters working for people, uh, working for for unemployed deaf people, are doing just as important work, if not more important, than people interpreting for Nigel Farage. And once we understand that, we understand interpreting. Yeah, because there basically is no hierarchy, right? I mean, we all do the same job after all. The only hierarchy is the one in our heads. That's very true. <laughs> That's very true. But Alex, can I ask you a question? I was wondering, because of course, Jonathan and I, were both coming from the freelance perspective of, of the interpreting market. Now, you, on the other hand, you're employed at the European Union. So I was wondering if that, how that works when it comes to the different stress factors, because I'm thinking and this might just be all in my head so so you tell me that a lot of the economic stress factors of course the entire freelance aspect kind of falls flat because you're employed but there might be other stress factors that we wouldn't have to deal with um yeah that's a good that's a good point i mean first of all it's true i mean if, if you if you're in stable employment of course you don't have to worry about uh you know finding clients marketing that kind of thing Uh, which which is great for me. I, I really enjoy that uh, predictability and, and stability. But I know a lot of people who say, oh God, that would be terrible. I can only survive <laughs> in this job as a freelancer. I want to be able to pick my own clients. I want to be, um, I want to be able to, to look for my own clients. I want to have the freedom to uh, turn down jobs, which I cannot do, you know, because if I'm assigned to a meeting, that's where I go and that's what I do. No questions asked. Um, But, but uh, yeah, are there other stress factors? I don't, I don't know. I mean, our work is very steady in a way. Uh, we're always, always in that EU bubble. It's always about EU topics, uh, be it agriculture, be it uh, transport, mobility, you know. So there's a, there's a very steady rhythm. And um, it, it really depends on how you look at that. So some people really enjoy that. 
you know, like going to the office, uh, not having to worry about marketing, finding clients. Other people say that would be the worst nightmare, and and they can't, they could never imagine doing that. So it, it's really a question of of perspective. Um, so I, I don't know if you were thinking of any specific stress factors apart from that. I, I would imagine one of the things that strikes me about institutional interpreting um, is the sense of responsibility that must come with it. Now, we're all responsible for something, um, but there are some interpreting jobs that certainly in the freelance market are more stressful just because, you know, I, I did a job which was a, a policy job and I knew if I mucked this up, this is a risk to someone's livelihood. Um, and I remember actually one of the, the speakers at, at it saying, we have to remember this is someone's livelihood we're talking about. Um, whereas, but I could get another job where it's just, you know, someone might not make as good a point. Whereas in your work, Alexander, every single job has probably got that sense of responsibility behind of it with a, a kind of client's hoping that you don't muck up because otherwise the wrong person might get funding or you know, a, a community might not be heard. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, of course we shouldn't muck up. I mean, we... <laughs> it would explain a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a given, I think. But I mean, I, I always like, when, when people ask me about that, I, I usually refer to the fact that uh, it's teamwork. And I mean, we're not sitting alone in the booth, which which may come back to that uh, aspect of, of sharing and, and of talking to colleagues. It's teamwork. So, uh, you know, if I, if I get the numbers wrong or if I got the wrong name, then my colleague will very quickly, um, you know, <laughs> let me know and, and maybe write down the, the correct name and then I'll, I'll rectify. And that's not a that's not a problem. The, the, there's kind of one more point I just want to pull out of the article and then I think actually we're heading towards how you deal with the stress anyway and we've kind of had that thread through um, but one of the most fundamental issues that I see in interpreting at the moment especially when you look at say the, the court interpreting contract in, in England and Wales if you look at the um, difficulties with getting safety for uh, military interpreters and that is that there's a lack of public understanding of A, what interpreters do, and B, why they should care. Um, and I think if you add those two things together, I remember I mentioned in the article I had a chat with with kind of the president of FIT and another professor, um, and basically, the, the, well, a professor, and basically the outcome was they said, you know, how do we get, we were asking a question, how do we get PR for interpreting? And how do we get the positive headlines to outweigh the negative headlines? And part of that, I think, is step by step getting permission from clients, even on a really general basis. And maybe um, public uh, community interpreters, medical interpreters might have to find a way around this. But being able to generally say something like, you know, I, I once did a job for a, a major manufacturer of construction equipment. I'm not going to tell you who, but because of that job, they got two articles in the French press on exactly the products that we were interpreting about. That kind of thing, which you which you can de which you can anonymize really easily, is actually really useful for interpreting. But if we have this sworn to secrecy thing, we've tied their own hands behind their backs needlessly. Mm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the the PR and the good and the bad press because um, that reminds me of of something that I think leads to a certain degree of helpless helplessness and frustration with interpreters is exactly the fact that that uh, there's not a very good understanding in the general public about what we do and and how it works and and you know what what the whole point is sometimes. So you get these these stupid uh, media articles um, sometimes. So there was there was a thing going on in Brussels here the other day where the, the secretary. General of the European Parliament um, told the MEPs um, to not speak too quickly and ideally speak in their mother tongue uh, to make it easier for the interpreters. I mean, but that that what he said was completely uh, was taken completely out of context and uh, was then taken up by a, a local publication here and and was given a spin to mean well there you go the eurocrats you know the the interpreting eurocrats now the the MEPs our elected representatives in brussels they have to give in to the will of the interpreters and and you know just to make it more comfortable for the interpreters which was completely beside the point because and that's i think where the where the, uh, the important point comes in um speaking decently uh using your mother tongue if possible 
um, not reading at lightning speed is not something that you do, you know, to please the interpreters. It's just a common sense thing to do um, to make communication happen. I mean, it's just also a courtesy to the other people that listen to you, maybe even without interpretation. And that can be very frustrating when these things happen or when the press just picks up a negative event, like with this uh, guy who <laughs> who pretended to be a sign language interpreter uh, in South Africa and who wasn't, who wasn't qualified at all. So that kind of thing gets a lot of press and gets a lot of memes on social media. And it's extremely frustrating for professional interpreters. It's the understanding of the reason why things like that can happen is because the only people who know enough about interpreting to say something have felt unable to say something. Yeah. But I, I do think that something that, that Jonathan, you mentioned in the article, and, and you call it the war stories, and I think that's very apt, and I think that also goes to what you were just saying about that sign language situation, Alex. Oftentimes, people only only report about the negative things. So in this case, it was obviously a, a, a fraud who was doing the sign language interpreting. And oftentimes the war stories that we even share between each other are just a horrible job. So the jobs that, you know, this was the worst thing, this was the most grueling conference, this was the toughest one, this was the most technical one, things that basically were not a very pleasant experience. And oftentimes that's the only thing that we focus on, that we talk about, but then also, of course, that the media talks about. And... Um, we have a, a colleague on Facebook, Lloyd Bingham, from, from the UK, and he was mentioning this once. Don't put all your crap on Facebook. Don't put it on Twitter. Don't tweet out, oh, my God, I just had the worst conference of my life. This was horrible, and the client was nasty, and my colleague wasn't nice. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't do that, but just don't mm. vent your negative feelings in such a public way that you know this is something that people are going to focus on. And, and just just don't shine that kind of light on our profession. Try to make it seem positive. You know, if you have a great conference, tell people, you know, this was a, re a fantastic conference. I had a great speaker. The content was phenomenal. I did a, I feel like I did a great job. I, the communication worked seamlessly. Those are the kinds of things that we should talk about with each other. But then again, of course, you run the you run the risk of coming off very show offish. You know, oh, I did this conference and it was phenomenal. You should have been there. I was great. The topic was amazing. <laughs> so you know, you don't want to do those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes that's why we don't talk about them, even though I feel we really should. Yeah, and I I think that this is where we we have to ask interpreters to be wise. On the one hand we need to be able to share these negative experiences with someone and there's a time and a place. And, you know, if, if I have a really bad job, I now have interpreters who I can email and say, you won't believe this, but I'm not going to put that on my business blog. On the other hand, um, I think it's absolutely fair and I think it's absolutely correct. If for instance, you know, I, I once did a job where the, um, it, it went so well the second day that the the head of the French delegation leant behind me while I was doing chuchotage and said in French, he's a good interpreter, isn't he? That's the kind of stuff you put on Facebook. Um, we can discuss the negative stuff in some kind of private forum within professional associations away from clients. Clients need to, un need to see where what interpreting looks like when it's a success and they need to understand what the success factors are. Absolutely. Um, but, but we also do need to, venting is the wrong word, but I think we do need to decompress and we do need to have interpreter friends that we can email and go, can I just, you know, I've had some great jobs, but can I just tell you about this last one? Um, maybe maybe we need like an, an, uh, an anonymous interpreter confessions place. Um, there, there's wonderful librarians where librarians go in anonymously and, and confess to some horrible thing. Like, you know, I'm a librarian and I don't actually like to read. But, you know, maybe <laughs> there needs to be some kind of walled garden where interpreters confess and say, you know... I don't actually like to speak. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it, it could be something like, um, I find it really hard to interpret because the guy I was interpreting for had a really bad toupee. You know, that kind of stuff, you don't want to tell the client, but you, you kind of do need to tell another interpreter and go, can you give me a strategy for when the guy's here is waving about like a squirrel? <laughs> Close your eyes. Alex, that kind of reminds me of our Donald Trump conversation that we were having earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
but but I think a, a good a good venue, a good occasion for that kind of decompressing, and I think that's really a good term, is uh, again with the professional associations. Um, that's what I experienced several times, and I always very much appreciated were basically nights out or a Stammtisch, as we would say in German. So it's just a bunch of colleagues um, and a mix uh, even sometimes of translators and interpreters getting together over a beer or wine or whatever you'd like to have and just, ex uh, you know, just talking. And it's about war stories. It's about uh, nice experiences. It's about that great agency you finally found and that you like working with, um, that new dictionary you found or that great website. And I always found that very, very interesting um, not only to and, and not only to talk about professional issues, but even sometimes about private things. So, so that was a great um, a great thing that is often enabled or organized by the professional associations. But maybe we can just to to round things off, go through a, f uh, a few tips and strategies that can help against stress um, and burnout. And I think Jonathan, you were very eager to share your uh, morning routine with us, weren't you? <laughs> Well, my morning routine, as Alex will know, because he's read my upcoming book, May the 12th, um, my morning routine came about because I went to physio with a bad knee and the physio basically told me my job was my problem. So working with that physio and then talking to a physio in my church, I've got this routine, which I'm trying to get back into after the, the birth of our youngest, which is before I do anything, even before I, I read my Bible and pray, I'll try to do exercises. And I have things like, um, so I have a, a set that I do three times. And that's I do 10 one knee dips on each leg. That's to strengthen the muscles that were weak that caused me um, to have sore knees. I do um, some half press-ups, uh, both wide and narrow, to strengthen my arms. And also the advice that I was given by a physio is that if you're not quite doing a full press-up properly, you can actually hurt yourself. So for safety, you're better doing a half one, which is where you're, you're using your knees for support. And I also do some, I also try to do five to 10 sit-ups in each set. And that's because I have what um, Alex Gansmeyer won't understand by Alex Drexler well, and that is daddy belly. Um, <laughs> so I'm trying to shed the daddy belly. Which no one believes me that I have one, but when you you know, when people close to you point out that you know you're not the same shape as you used to be, you realise <laughs> you, you have to work off. And it is, it's always gentle, but you see, this is the thing: is you need people around you. Talking about support groups, you need people around you who can point to areas and who can gently point to areas in your life where you're getting flabby. And it needn't be physical, it could be mental, it could be things like, you know, I love the fact that I do a lot of work from home because then I can, um, my wife is going to spot either when I'm working too hard or when I'm on Facebook too much. We need to be accountable to people who can point out the flab gently for our own good and, and help us find strategies to, to get rid of it, even if it means doing setups. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that that would be the point of having healthier relationships, uh, not only in your professional circles, but also in, in family and, and friends circles. Um, very, very important. And um, we've talked a little bit about uh, physical activity, physical self-care that could also involve other things like, uh, you know, yoga, exercises or meditation um, or prayer. Uh, as you just uh, mentioned, Jonathan, and, and just all in all avoiding professional uh, isolation. And, and of course, one thing that we maybe haven't touched uh, enough upon, but we can do that in a future episode, would be um, professional development. So getting training, uh, focusing on weaknesses that you may have, um, and that could be all kinds of things. I mean, uh, you, you could learn more about a given topic, about a certain industry, or maybe brush up on your concept technique, that kind no, of thing. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> can sex scares the Rosanna out of me? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I saw a really nice quote from um, John Maxwell, who's a, a leadership expert, and he was talking about professional development. And he said, the key is always to work on a weakness within your strength. So, for instance, um, I'm, a good in, I'm a really good interpreter, but you shouldn't ask me to cook dinner for you. Okay, I once cooked dinner for my future mother-in-law and nearly gave her food poisoning. Um, so there's no point in me spending... <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was right after she said it was okay to 
to get married to her daughter. Um, but, you know, there, there's no point in me getting training from, from Gordon Ramsay. It's not going to help. But there are areas of my interpreting practice like Consec, like my French public speaking, which, you know, I'm probably ahead of a percentage of people, but they're weak compared to other areas of practice. So you push them up. And there's a, a school of thought that goes that when you work on your strengths, the things that it takes to work on your strengths actually naturally pull some of your weaknesses up anyway. So at the moment, my liaison is my weakness. But I know if I work on some of my simultaneous techniques or my analysis techniques, if I work on consecutive note taking, even though it scares me, that will pull up naturally my liaison because those skills are there as well. Um, so that that's perhaps a useful way of seeing it is, you know, what are the weaknesses within your strengths and how can you pull them up? That was great advice. Yeah. And I, I wanted just as a very last tip, which, which is not serious, but I still wanted to put it in the podcast because this one article that we shared in preparation for the podcast was also about stress. And the question here, what can interpreters do to re relieve stress? And one of the answers was smoke. Out of fashion socially, but there was a time terminating around 1980 when conference interpreters smoked, even chain smoked in the booth. And I haven't experienced it myself, but I have quite a few colleagues where I work um, who still remember the terrible old days when people used to smoke in the booth, um, especially older gentlemen. And of course, Lovely. you had no right whatsoever in complaining about that. And you would just sit there and grin and bear it and sitting in the smoke all day. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, okay, I think we had a, we had quite a few good tips and, and hopefully you found the discussion useful. You can listen to us soon on future episodes of the Troublesome Turfs podcast. You can find us on the web, uh, www.spreaker.com, like speaker, but with an R in the middle. And if you just look for Troublesome Turfs there, you will definitely find us. We also have a Tumblr blog where we post funny things. We can be found as Trouble Turps, and we're very much looking forward to the next episode. Thank you for listening in. Uh, yeah, a final remark, Jonathan. Your book is out in May, right? <laughs> I always have the last word. <laughs> if people want to contact us about this article, the Ask Me In, the Ask page on Trouble Terps will send us a message and you'll be able to, to get in contact with us. If anything on this show um, has affected you personally or is affecting you, um, please contact us, but also do consider if you need it, please get the help that you need. I think that's an excellent way to wrap this up. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone, and talk to you next time. Bye. 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 Thank you for being my two weird friends. I need to debrief. <laughs> <laughs>